What up, folks? What's going on? And welcome to episode number 75 of the Spun Today podcast. I'm your host, Tony Ortiz. Thank you very much for listening. The last episode that I released was a vaulted episode that I recorded in advance and that I had stashed away to release on a day that I wouldn't be able to record a new episode in time to release consistently on the bi-weekly schedule that I released these things on. So from my perspective, it feels like it's been a minute since I recorded one of these, or at least a new one of these. Alrighty, let's get to it. In this episode, I speak about Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. This is a prevalent topic in today's media that doesn't seem to be fleeting the way most coverage is nowadays. I read an article in The New Yorker that resonated with me due to its depth, background, and breadth of the topic, and I'm going to share and reflect on a few excerpts from it in a Dan Carlin-esque way. For those of you unfamiliar with Dan Carlin, first off, shame on you. Secondly, he is a natural national treasure, uh, was a journalist, and turned podcast host of the very, very, very popular Hardcore History podcast. He also has another podcast, if you're like into politics and stuff like that, that he does like once in a blue um, about like current events and politics and stuff like that. But the Hardcore History podcast format is pretty much a retelling of historical events like you know specific topics like he'll do like war world war one world war two you know like stuff like that and they span like three or four episodes and each episode is like three to five hours long and he prepares for it by reading dozens and dozens of books and articles and letters and journals and nobody does what he does the way he does it and what i'm gonna attempt to do in this episode which is you know, borrowing from his style is, you know, reading different excerpts uh, from this article, like I just mentioned, that resonated with me, and um, just reflect on it as I read it to you guys. It's not my usual style of podcast, but like I've told you guys before, this podcast is anchored in writing, and it's really good writing. Um, I'm into politics. It's one of the things that, that I actually enjoy following especially in these, you know, crazy times. And to me, this article did a really good job of answering questions regarding this this cyber attack on the U.S. elections. It answered questions for me that I had, like, what what's Putin's beef? You know, like, what's his motivation? And what is the motivation of greater Russia? Because we, ha- we haven't found out and, you know, like, what's the genesis, genesis of, of all of this? This article does a really good job of, of highlighting a bunch of those things. And according to U.S. intelligence agencies, it's without a doubt um, our elections were influenced, keyword influenced, by uh, Russian hackers. You know, how high up it goes is the unknown. You know, was, you know, Putin really, you know, encourage, encouraging it and calling the shots or was you know higher up russian oligarchs or just some random russian dudes that are are into hacking so those are all questions that i have you know swirling around in my mind as i like follow like the news coverage on this and read different articles and and 
watch the Senate Intelligence Oversight hearings when they uh, grilled Comey and prior to that, a couple weeks prior to that, when they grilled the the acting head of the FBI after Comey got fired, uh, the head of the CIA, um, the head of naval intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, on C-SPAN. And yes, I do watch that quote-unquote boring shit. And this article, at least for me, helped add a lot of, of color to, to the situation. And I want to go back real quick to the uh the russians influencing this election and it's not like you know they hacked into some sort of election database and hillary clinton really won the election and they you know flipped the switch and made it so that trump won and like duped us all that's not the way it works what they did do is through propaganda and very 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 targeted ads on social media platforms like facebook as well as by leaking classified information via wikileaks making one candidate in this example uh hillary clinton look worse and propped up trump to the point where it swayed enough voters to vote in the direction of trump now, would these people have voted for Trump anyway? Maybe, maybe not. Um, to what degree did, you know, did he, did, did these these um, intentional acts really sway public opinion to that level of significance? I don't know. I don't think any of us know. I don't think we could know. But I do say to take take everything that I'm about to say. Um, or read to you guys from this article with a grain of salt. It is a very liberal, liberal, left-leaning magazine. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a very left-leaning type of person, no matter how objective I try to be. But I could only speak from my perspective, right? And, you know, the the climate, at least within my bubble, um, prior to the election, was that it was, you know, hands down going to be a victory for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, it was a major national, quote-unquote, upset. But beyond all that, what I what I don't like about the narrative of this whole like Russia meddling in, in our elections thing is that it's been portrayed, at least in my opinion, as, you know, something new, something some, you know, nefarious type of act that, oh, my God, how dare you meddle in of uh, a free country's, you know, democracy. But it's been going on for ages, which is uh, something that the that this article goes into. And, you know, the the United States part uh, partakes in this as well throughout the world. It's just now with the Internet and social media and being able to, like, target people with ads in the way that you can. It's like so much more prevalent, so much stronger of a tool. And it really is amazing when when you think of the um, power of targeted ads. Like think about like when you're searching for stuff on the internet and then or on your phone or something like that. Then when you go on the computer, you see an ad, you know, pop up next to it, um, pop up next to your browser and stuff like that. 
uh, because it's following your patterns and stuff like that. Or even like with me, for example, I've um, dabbled with targeted ads for one of my books um, or my book, Make Way For You, check it out. And, you know, just to see like how it works and stuff like that. Because for writers, that is a main part of your marketing dollars, your your costs of, you know, trying to get the book in front of the eyes of people that would normally be into it. So you literally write out, you know, demo, you know, demographics like who are the people on Facebook that I want to see this, you know, this ad or this picture of this book pop up uh, with this little tagline, you know, male or female age 18 to 24 you know dominican heritage or you know you put different nationalities different interests people that are into self-help shit people that are into fiction into action into you know whatever it is so i've witnessed the power of that like firsthand in terms of the precision of it and now think of it as that is you know, somebody trying to like sell a book to somebody that might be interested in it. But think of that same range of tools being used for nefarious reasons, you know, target people that have, you know, use words online that sound more nationalistic, more, you know, USA pride and, you know, pro white people or, you know, the quintessential quote unquote um, Trump supporters the hard-working white middle class in the rust belt right that like put them over those voters target them in the same way what do they see when they open up their facebook you know hillary's a serial killer and she's going to start world war three and this and that and her leaked emails and etc etc you could do some sick shit nowadays it's not like back in the days like dropping pamphlets from you know, an airplane zipping by in the sky. Another example of of targeting. I was part of um, volunteering for uh, local elections back in the day, and a very powerful thing that you could see a difference between candidates is, you know, certain candidates that you know go door to door and you know knock on people's doors and you know, hey, I'm gonna vote in your area. I want you to come out and vote. Versus candidates that go to the board of elections pull up the public records of people that have voted in the past several elections and specifically in primary elections not just the general election which are more hardcore voters you know like people that go out for like city council elections and state senate and assembly and mayor you know not not just for like mayor and governor and uh, the president you know, people that vote for their local elections every couple of years, their state senators, their U.S. senators, you know, all, the, all that good stuff. Like those people are the people that you want to target for that type of election. And you can, you know, they literally have names. There's single prime voters, double prime voters, triple prime vo- voters. And they mean that the like uh, single prime voter voted in at least one primary election over X amount of years. Uh, double prime voter in, in two, uh, triple prime voter in three, you know, etc. So if somebody, you know, if you're just randomly going out knocking on doors, you're going to get, you know, people that don't vote, people that don't give a fuck about politics. And, you know, you, you're wasting your resources. You're not targeting the people that you want to target, that you need to be targeting. That's another example of how I see that targeting works. So 
when I guess maybe that's another reason why this article resonated with me so much because I see the I understand like that targeting that that concept of it in a really practical way but anyway I hope this article helps shed some light on a lot of the shit that that uh, we're seeing uh, going on and hope you guys enjoy the episode so let's get started by the way I have a a bit of a cold I'm coming down with I think I, I just been coughing and, and stuff a lot so I apologize in advance but I'll try to like cut some of that stuff out some of the throat clearing and shit like that out in post all right so I will link to a copy of the article so that you guys can read it yourselves in its full context again I'm just pulling out certain excerpts from throughout the article I actually read it in a hard copy of the New Yorker uh, but I found the article online. I skimmed, I skimmed it online, and it looked exactly the same, with the exception of the title, which the print copy is called "Active Measures," and the online copy is called "Trump, Putin, and the New Cold War." Aside from that, everything else looks the same. The article is written by Evan Osnos, David Remnick, and Joshua Yaffa, and I'm gonna go. You know, like I said, I'm going to pull out excerpts, but I will be going um, in order, like, chronologically. And here we go. On April 12, 1982, Yuri Andropov, the chairman of the KGB, which the KGB is like their Russia's CIA, ordered foreign intelligence, or like NSA, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> ordered foreign intelligence operatives to carry out, quote, active measures against the re-election campaign of President Ronald Reagan. Unlike classic espionage, which involves the collection of foreign secrets, active measures aim to influence inciting events. At undermining a rival power with forgeries, front groups, and countless other techniques honed during the Cold War, the Soviet leadership considered Ronald Reagan an implacable militarist According to extensive notes made by Vasily Mitrokhin, a high-ranking KGB officer, and archivist who later defected to Great Britain, Soviet intelligence tried to infiltrate the headquarters of the Republican and Democratic National Committees, popularize the slogan, quote, Reagan means war, and discredit the president as a corrupt servant of the military-industrial complex. The effort had no evident effect. Reagan won 49 of 50 states. So that's in 1982. My main takeaway from that is that they have, they have um, a name for, for this, for this practice called the active measures. I wasn't even born when this shit was going on. All right, let's continue. Quote, active measures were used by both sides throughout the Cold War. In the 1960s, Soviet intelligence officers spread a rumor that the U.S. government was involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in the 80s. Of Martin Luther King Jr. In the 80s, they spread the rumor that American intelligence had created the AIDS virus at Fort Detrick, Maryland. They regularly lent support to leftist parties and insurgencies. The CIA for its part, worked to overthrow 
regimes in Iran, Cuba, Haiti, Brazil, Chile, and Panama. It used cash payments, propaganda, and sometimes violent measures to sway elections away from left leftist parties in Italy, Guatemala, Indonesia, South Vietnam, and Nicaragua. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, the CIA asked Russia to abandon active measures to spread disinformation that could harm the U.S., and Russia promised to do so. So see, this shit was going on on all sides. You know, think um, Iran-Contra scandal. Think Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, like all that shit. The Sandinistas, all that meddling. The U.S. went into DR, too, I think, to try to overthrow Trujillo and I think. All right, let's continue here. But when Sergei Tretsyakov, the station chief for Russian intelligence in New York, defected in 2000, he revealed that Moscow's active active measures had never subsided. Quote, nothing has changed, end quote, he wrote in 2008. Russia is doing everything it can today to embarrass the U.S., I guess they've headed in for the U.S. for a minute. Grain of salt, though, guys. Grain of salt. But it is a direct quote. (laughs) Um, Vladimir Putin, who is quick to accuse the West of hypocrisy, frequently points to this history. He sees a straight line from the West's support of the anti-Moscow color revolutions in Georgia. In Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and Ukraine which deposed corrupt Soviet-era leaders to its endorsement of the uprisings of the Arab Spring. Five years ago, he blamed Secretary of State Hillary Clinton for the anti-Kremlin protests in Moscow's Boltanaya Square. Boltanaya Square. She set the tone for some of our actors. in the country and gave the signal Putin said they heard this and with the support of the US State Department began active work and in parentheses the article says that no evidence was provided for the accusation alright so we know where his head's at later on in the article it goes on to say Benjamin Rhodes a deputy national security advisor under President Obama is among those who reject Putin's logic. But, he said, Putin is not entirely wrong. Adding that, in the past, we engaged in regime change around the world. The 2016 presidential campaign in the United States was of keen interest to Putin. He loathed Obama, who had applied economic sanctions against Putin, Putin's cronies, after the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of eastern Ukraine. Russian state television derided Obama as weak and uncivilized. Clinton, in Putin's view, was worse. The embodiment of liberal liberal interven- interventionist strain of the U.S. foreign policy. More hawkish than Obama, and an obstacle to ending sanctions and reestablishing Russian geopolitical influence. So apparently, from his point of view, uh, a Clinton election would be more of Obama, but worse. So it would make sense, if that's true, 
that he wouldn't want her elected and would put push efforts toward soiling her name and her credibility. At the same time, Putin definitely flattered Trump, who was uncommonly positive in his statements about Putin's strength and effectiveness as leader. As early as 2007, Trump declared that Putin was, quote, doing a great job in rebuilding the image of Russia and also rebuilding Russia, period, end quote. That is kind of weird, by the way, to me, like the way Trump kind of like kisses his ass. It's like one thing if he was if he just wasn't like that against Russia and Putin, you know, the way like historically I guess the two countries have been in both um like Republican and Democratic old school leaders. We're team USA, fuck team Russia, you know, type of outlook and relationship that they just continue to inherit generation after generation type of thing. It's one thing not to have that, but it's another thing to not have that plus like all the extra shit, like all the praising and and stuff like that. Like you could respect from afar if that's, you know, your thing or whatever. Anyway. Right. Later on, the article goes on to say John Podesta, the chairman of Hillary Clinton's campaign and a former chief of staff of Bill Clinton's had every reason to be aware of the fragile nature of modern communications. As a senior counselor in the Obama White House, he was involved in digital policy. Yet, even he had not bothered to use the most elementary sort of defense, two-step verification for his email account. Quote, The honest answer is that my team and I were over-reliant on the fact that we were careful about what we clicked on, Podesta said. In this instance, he received a phishing email, ostensibly from the Gmail team, that urged him to change your password immediately. An IT person who was asked to verify it mistakenly replied that it was a legitimate email. What I got from that is that we're all people. You know, people make mistakes. You know, it's not... We kind of have... And I've said this at nauseam in the past. Like, this idea in our heads of... Some omniscient forces that are, like, running shit. And if it's in the White House... You know, the IT in the, in the White House is, like... Must be... Or the NSA or, like, wherever. In, in the government must be, like... Neo from the Matrix of the IT department. You know what I mean? But they're not. They're, you know, probably just like the the IT guys at my job. You know, some of them are better than others. Some of them are... are, I was about to say an insensitive word, but let's just say that some are not as good at their jobs as others. And this could have been a case where this IT guy was texting his wife or girlfriend and fucking John Podesta hit him up and was like, yo... You know, I just got this email from the Gmail team saying to change my password. The guy was probably in the middle of a, of a conversation that he wanted to finish having. And was like, yeah, 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 it should be fine. Just change it. Meanwhile, it's like an email from Putin saying, let me read all your top secret classified information. I mean, th- I am the Gmail team. Change your password. Click here. And you know, shit happens just like that. What's that? What's that saying? Um... Don't attribute to 
malicious genius or something like that what you could attribute to incompetence all right so i found that interesting let me skip ahead a bit and let's see the article goes on to say uh quote um a former kgb member it says free societies are often split because people have their own views and that's what former soviet and current russian intelligence tries to take advantage of oleg kalugin a former kgb general who has lived in the united states since 1995 said the goal is to deepen the splits so that's the tactic of active measures and to do to do so they use things like the you know obama was born in kenya thing or uh climate change was really a chinese hoax and they put these these they by uh direct targeting you know they put these stories and you know call it fake news call it whatever in the zeitgeist of the media and play with you know the whole divide and conquer shit some people are going to believe this some people are not and things like that are what we wind up voting for our politicians based on you know like climate change that's a big talking point the potentiality of war that's another one all right let's move on here in early january Two weeks before the inauguration, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, released a declassified report concluding that Putin had ordered an influence campaign to harm Clinton's election prospects, fortify Donald Trump's, and, quote, undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process. You hear that? All you, my vote doesn't count, my vote doesn't matter, who gives a shit, it's all corrupt anyway. You fucks, you're the ones being targeted in that last piece that says, quote, undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process. You commie bastards. Critics of the report have reportedly noted that intelligence agencies in the months before the Iraq war endorsed faulty assessments concerning weapons of mass destruction. That's crazy. But the intelligence community was deeply divided over the actual extent of Iraq's weapons development. The question of Russia's responsibility for cyber attacks in the 2016 election has produced no such tumult. 17 federal intelligence agencies have agreed that Russia was responsible for the hacking. In testimony before the Senate in testimony, in testimony before the Senate, Clapper described an unprecedented Russian effort to interfere in the U.S. Elect electoral process. The operation involved hacking Democrats' emails, publicizing the stolen contents through WikiLeaks, and manipulating social media to spread, quote, fake news and pro-Trump messages. And half of us as a country just bent over and took all that shit, huh? The article later goes on to say, Yevgenia Albatz, the author of The State Within, A State, a book about the KGB, said that Putin probably didn't believe he could alter the results of the election, but because of his antipathy 
toward Obama and Clinton, he did what he could to boost Trump's cause and undermine America's confidence in its political system. So Putin didn't even think this shit would work to the extent that it did. All right, so let's dig into Putin a bit. What's his beef? Like, what's, like, why? Like, if everything that I just read and, like, all the excerpts that I pulled out and stuff like that and all these uh, nefarious actions are true, like, why? Like, who does that? This section of the article is called Putin's World. And it goes on to say, Putin's resentment of the West and his corresponding ambition to establish an anti-Western conservatism is rooted in his experience of decline and fall. Not of communist ideology, which was never a central concern of his generation, but rather of Russian power and pride. Putin, who was born in 1952, grew up in Leningrad, in Leningrad, where during the Second World War, Nazi troops imposed a 900-day siege that starved the city. His father was badly wounded in the war. Putin joined the KGB in 1975, when he was 23, and was eventually sent to eastern Germany. Posted in one of the greatest of the Soviet satellites, Putin entirely missed the sense of awakening and opportunity that accompanied perestroika and experienced only the state's growing feckleness. Feckleness. Fecklessness. At the very moment the Berlin Wall was breached in November 1989, he was in the basement of a Soviet diplomatic compound in Dresden, feeding top-secret documents into a furnace. As crowds of Germans threatened to break into the building, officers called Moscow for assistance. But in Putin's words, quote, Moscow was silent, end quote. Putin returned to Russia, where the sense of post-imperial decline persisted. The West no longer feared Soviet power. Eastern and Central Europe were beyond Moscow's control. And the 15 republics of the Soviet Union were all going their own way. An empire shaped by Catherine the Great and Joseph Stalin was dissolving. So let's look at this from Putin's perspective for a bit. So you're growing up in war-torn Soviet Union. And the big dogs are the U.S. and Russia. Then you got uh, Germany coming through, the whole Nazis and, you know, Holocaust and trying to take over the world and all that jazz. And uh, your pops is hurt in this. Uh, or because of this, rather. And you end up joining the KGB and you try, you want to make a difference. And and you have this sense of nationalistic pride. Then you have the, the Berlin Wall falling and and the uh, Russia pretty much giving in to U.S. And Germany getting fucked up and Putin calling uh, back home to headquarters, fucking Moscow for backup. And he hears crickets and he goes back home and he sees like all this shit, you know, that he's fighting for just like going away so he's tight the article goes on to say 
The fall of the imperial state meant the loss of 2 million square miles of territory, a parcel larger than India. Tens of millions of ethnic Russians now found themselves, quote, abroad. Those were like all those countries that split, that used to be under, you know, Soviet control, under the Soviet Union, under that empire, and started doing their own thing, became like their own, like, little countries, you know, like all the, um, I don't know, from the top of my head, maybe like Czechoslovakia and Poland and Ukraine and Lithuania and like all those, like, Russian sounding countries. <laughs> So then, fast forward a little while more over the years, um, prior to Putin, uh, Yeltsin was in power, and he was more democratic. Putin, was, Putin, you know, was more of the authoritarian type, and you know was still in the picture. You know, uh, like a quote, rising star within their uh, political landscape. Yeltsin was seen by many as weak. Um, he, towards the end of his uh, last election, he like barely eked out a win over a communist opponent and he was an alcoholic and long story short, he wound up resigning and appointing, um, Vladimir Putin as his replacement. Then Putin comes in again. He has his, this like authority, uh, authoritarian bend, <clears throat> And the article goes on to say that within five months of taking power, he dispatched armed interior ministry troops to raid Gusinski's headquarters. By 2001, Gusinski had been forced to give up NTV to more obedient owners and had fled the country. Ever since, television has been under strict federal control. So Putin, one of, within five months, one of his first, you know, objectives was to take over this this national TV station, which was uh, depicting him in a negative light, and the owner of it fled the country, and he gave control over to a puppet, essentially. And since all TV is under fucking federal control. That's a scary thought. Then it goes on to say, Putin, in his first few years in office, was relatively solicitous of the West. He was the first foreign leader to call George W. Bush after the destruction of the World Trade Center towers. Then it goes on to say, America's invasion of Iraq, which Putin opposed, marked a change in this thinking. By 2007, Putin had grown deeply disenchanted and came to feel that the West was treating Russia as a vassal. Robert Gates recalls a security conference in Munich in 2007, at which Putin angrily charged that the United States had, quote, overstepped its national borders in every area, and that the expansion of NATO was directed against Russian interests. Then, um... Poon continues to like find his place in power, find his his true self, if you will. It goes on to say he knew that the fall of communism and Soviet power had left a vacuum, 
the lack of a national idea to replace Marxism-Leninism. When Putin returned to the presidency for a third term in 2012, he felt he he felt the need to develop a Russian ideology of his own, and called on currents that run deep in Russian political culture, nationalism, xenophobia, and social conservatism. The old uh, top three tactics, huh? Sounds very familiar to the playbook that some politicians here at home are using nowadays. Then the article goes on to say, although Putin grew up under Soviet atheism, he nonetheless decreed secular Americans and Europeans for, quote, rejecting their roots, including the Christian values that constitute the basis of Western civilization. Then it goes on to say that he was alarmed by the Obama administration's embrace of the uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt. And he was infuriated by the U.S.-led assaults on Muammar Gaddafi's regime. In the rare public split, in a rare public split, Putin condemned the decision comparing the resolution to a, quote, medieval call to the Crusades. The article goes on to say, from Putin's perspective, this was a case study in Western intervention. Stir up protests, give them rhetoric, uh, rhetorical support, and diplomatic cover. And if that doesn't work, send in the fighter jets. Putin also regarded the anti-Kremlin pro-democracy demonstrations in Moscow, which started in 2011, as a rehearsal for an uprising that had to be thwarted. So this motherfucker's paranoid or maybe correct. All right, so this brings us to the hacking stuff. This is part four of the article. It's called The Hybrid War. By 1996, however, a new generation of hackers in Russia had achieved the first state-directed penetration of America's military network, pilfering tens of thousands of files, including military hardware, designs, maps of military installations, and troop configurations. In 2008, according to, quote, Dark Territory, a history of cyber war by Fred Kaplan, Russian hackers accomplished a feat that Pentagon officials considered almost impossible, breaching a classified network that wasn't even connected to the public internet. How did they do this, may you ask? Let's find out in the next paragraph. Apparently, Russian spies had supplied cheap thumbnail drives stocked with viruses to retail kiosks near NATO headquarters in Kabul, betting correctly that a U.S. serviceman or woman would buy one and insert it into a secure computer. In the past decade, cyber tactics have become an essential component of Russia's efforts to exert influence over its neighbors. That's some sick diabolical shit and kind of like an ill plan at the same time, right? So they have to 
get into these computers that aren't connected to the internet so there's no like route to like get into it like through an unsecured wi-fi or you know something because they're not connected to the internet to the public internet they're secure computers so they went the route of supplying thumb drives to a nearby store in kabul um betting that you know somebody again we're human is gonna be like oh fuck i need a thumb drive to you know i lost mine my fucking high-tech virus proof one or whatever you know let me just get another one so i could do what i gotta do and they grab one at the fucking 7-eleven down the block plug it into the computer boom rushes in and is able to hack things and find out things like military configuration of troops and shit like that that's some next level shit i like how this article as i continue to read is going to be is going to show like the level of sophistication of the hacking culture later on it says that that the that russia had um a beef with nearby a georgian territory and it goes on to say that our television showed how the shelling started the incursion of georgian forces and so on zlotarev who helped draft russia's national security doctrine in the 1990s said these pictures were shown in the west two days later but as if Russia were doing the shelling, attacking Georgia, when it was apparently the other way around. <clears throat> Russian generals took this lesson to heart and began to study how to use the media and other instruments to wage, quote, information war. Later putting that, later putting what they learned into practice in Ukraine and then Syria. The United States, meanwhile, had its own notable cyber war success. In 2008, in tandem with Israeli intelligence, the U.S. launched the first digital attack on another country's critical infrastructure, deploying a, quote, worm known as Stuxnet that was designed to cause centrifuges in Iran to spin out of control and thereby delay its nuclear development. So we're in this game heavy, too. Don't get it twisted. When Robert Nake arrived as the director of cybersecurity policy at the national security council in 2011 the white house had a formal initiative to combat chinese hacking known as the counter china strategy nick recalled the question was okay now what's the counter russia plan and the counter iran plan the difficulty was that in the aftermath of stuxnet the u.s needed iran's cooperation on diplomatic priorities from 2011 to 2013, Iranian-backed hackers waged a sustained DDoS attack on dozens of American banks and financial services companies, but the U.S. didn't respond in kind, partly because the administration was negotiating with Iran to curb its nuclear program. If we had unleashed the fury in response to that DDoS attack, I don't know if we would have gotten an Iran deal, Naik said. In other cases, the administration declined to respond forcefully so that it could retain the option of deploying similar means on another country. 
on other countries. As long as we think we're getting more value from this set of rules than we're losing, then this is the set of rules we want to promote, Naik said. The article goes on to speak about a Russian publication called the Military Industrial Courier, which has a tiny yet influential readership in Russia in um, amongst Russian military strategists. And it goes on to say, the article identified and urged the adoption of a Western strategy that involved military, technological, media, political, and intelligence tactics that would destabilize an enemy at minimal cost. Then it goes on to suggest that in the future, wars will be fought with a four to one ratio of non-military to military measures. The former, he wrote, should include efforts to shape the political and social landscape of the adversary through subversion, espionage, propaganda, and cyber attacks. Then we skip ahead a bit, and the article goes on to say, such events were typical of warfare in the 21st century, he wrote. The role of non-military means of achieving political and strategic goals has grown, and in many cases, they have exceeded the power of force of weapons in their effectiveness. Pavel Zola, Zolotarev, the retired Russian general, explained that when Gerasimov's essay was published, we had come to the conclusion, having analyzed the actions of Western countries in the post-Soviet space, first of all, the United States, that manipulation in the information sphere is a very effective tool. Previously, one had to use, quote, grandfather-style methods, scatter leaflets, throw around some printed materials, manipulate the radio or television, Zolotov said. But all of a sudden, new means have appeared. Thank you, Facebook. No, I'm joking. Can't stop technology and progress, right? What's that quote that I like? He who gives up freedom for safety deserves neither. All right. The article goes on to say, In the fall of 2014, a hacking group known as the Dukes entered an unclassified computer system at the U.S. State Department and gained enough control so that one official, so as one official put it, they, quote, owned the system. In security circles, the Dukes, also referred to as Cozy Bear, were believed to be directed by the Russian government. Very little is known about the size and composition of Russia's team and state of cyber warriors. So you see, none of this shit is new. It's the oldest tricks in the newest ways. Darko goes on. A retired KGB colonel recently told the magazine Ogonyok that Russia had about a thousand people working in military and security operations online. According to a detailed report that appeared last November in the well-regarded online publication Medusa, several hundred technical specialists have left commercial firms to work for state-run cyber teams. A defense ministry 
spokesperson refused to confirm any details, telling a Medusa correspondent that the topic uh, is secret. Quote, so no one can see how we might apply these methods. And warning against publication. Quote, don't risk doing anything further. Don't put yourself in the crosshairs. Fucking Russians don't play, huh? After penetrating the State Department, the Dukes moved on to the unclassified computer network that serves the executive office of the president. The network manages, for instance, details of his movements. That's scary. Then it goes on to say, Russian state media have suggested that one of her opponents, Emmanuel Macron, is a tool of American banks and has a secret gay lover. Oh, that's about uh, Le Pen and the elections in in France. So if you get like read the full article, like I said, um, you get like within the full context that like the narrative is how, you know, we've meddled. We meaning like the U.S. have meddled in elections and and uprisings in several different countries. Russians are doing it as well. And as well as, you know, other countries, Iran does it, China does it, you know, any, any, that's like where the new wars are being fought, where the new competition is taking place amongst countries and where we help to promote uprisings and more liberal leaning factions. The uh, Russians, for example, lean more towards the right and more conservative communistic if that's even a word xenophobic uh leaders and movements and right then the article goes on to say that the perpetrators are interested in delegitimizing the democratic process as such regardless of whom that ends up helping so a lot of this is rooted in just a the hate for the system that brought down their system. Like, fuck your team. I'm team Russia all the way. And I just want to divide and conquer and leave you guys in havoc and fighting amongst each other and promote racial tensions until you uh, develop movements such as Black Lives Matter, which then spawns counter movements like all lives matter and then it's like yeah no shit all lives matter but we have to say black lives matter because you're not acting as if ours matter just yours matter and then you know having this like inner turmoil and infighting and have us fighting about our politics and and undermining the democratic process in our country the way we are now i see you Putin. all right the article goes on and states even the best teams make mistakes. And a lot of times, the guys who are great at hacking are not forensics guys who also know how to do investigations and understand all the artifacts that they're leaving on a machine. There's levels to this shit. Then the article says, ultimately the attack didn't require an enormous amount of expertise. Gaining access to an email account through spear phishing is more akin to breaking into a car with a clothes hanger 
than to building a complex cyber weapon like Stuxnet. Oleg Demidov, the information security expert, said that from a technical perspective, the hacking was mediocre, typical, totally standard, nothing outstanding. The achievement from Demidov's perspective was the knowledge of what to do with this information once it had been obtained. So what's crazy is that, to me, is like the tools of hacking range from like a handgun versus an RPG or an H-bomb or, or something like that. You know, like they have like levels to it. And, and it's crazy. It's fascinating. When you look at the situation with that in mind, it's, it's interesting times. All right, so the article goes on to say that a study led by Philip N. Howard, a specialist in Internet studies at Oxford University, found that during the second debate of the general election, automated Twitter accounts known as bots generated four tweets in favor of Trump for every one in favor of Clinton, driving Trump's messages to the top of trending topics, which mold media priorities. That's a very important point. And that's how our elections were hacked. Like I was saying in the beginning of this episode, it wasn't a um, Hillary really won, but Russia, you know, got into our board of elections website, you know, backend website or something and switched the results and said that uh, Trump actually won. It was shit like this. And I'm going to read this paragraph again, um, because, again, I think it's really important. A study led by Philip N. Howard, a specialist in Internet studies at Oxford University, found that during the second debate of the general election, automated Twitter accounts known as bots generated four tweets in favor of Trump for every one in favor of Clinton, driving Trump's message to the top of the trending topics, which mold media priorities. This next piece obviously didn't help um, in terms of like Clinton being elected. The article says, in the year since WikiLeaks gained prominence in 2010 by posting secret U.S. government documents, its founder, Julian Assange, had taken refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London to avoid a Swedish rape investigation that he considers a pretext for an American effort to extradite him. Which was bullshit, by the way. And from the details that I know of, it was... He had consensual sex with someone, his girlfriend at the time, or, or wife, or something like that. And midway through, he uh, like took the condom off or something, and it was completely consensual. You know, woke up the next day or or whenever, and because he removed the the condom, it could be seen as being rape or something. And it wasn't like hiding it from her, if I'm not mistaken. You know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have the condom on. Then that would be, like, a douchey fucked up move. But it wasn't that, I don't think. Anyway. Then uh, it continues as uh, saying, he has remained politically outspoken, hosting a show on Russian television for a time and later criticizing Clinton's candidacy, writing in February 2016 that she will, quote, push the United States into endless stupid wars which spread terrorism. 
Sorry, guys. I'm clearing my throat a lot. I'm coming down with some shit. Um, There's only a couple pages left and a few excerpts on each. This section is called uh, Turbulence Theory. And the article says, Russia's political hierarchy and official press greeted Trump's inauguration with unreserved glee. An old order had crumbled, and with it, an impediment to Putin's ambition. In 1917, armed supporters of Lenin stormed the Winter Palace and arrested capitalist ministers and overthrew the social political order. The lead article in the Daily Moskovsky Kamsmolets read. I'm great with all the Russian names and, and stuff, right? On January 20th, 2017, nobody in Washington planned to storm Congress or the White House and hang prominent members of the old regime from lampposts. But the feeling of the American political elite, especially the liberal liberal part of it, is not different from that of the Russian bourgeoisie 100 years ago. Sounds a little dramatic, but I see the point. The article later goes on to state, Andrei Kozarev, who served as foreign minister in the Yeltsin government, now lives in Washington, D.C. He left Russia as it became increasingly authoritarian. He now sees a disturbingly similar pattern in his adopted country. I am very concerned, he said. My fear is that this is probably the first time in my memory that it seems we have the same kind of people on both sides, in the Kremlin and in the White House. The Kremlin is like the White House area, like the Washington, D.C. area in Russia. The same people. It's probably why they like each other. It's not a matter of policy, but it's that they feel that they are alike. They care less for democracy and values and more for personal success, however that is defined. The article goes on to state that Putin likes Tillerson, who Putin likes people like Tillerson, who do business and don't talk about human rights, one former Russian policy advisor said. The Trump administration notably said nothing when a Russian court, the courts are well within Putin's control, found Alexei Navalny an anti-corruption campaigner and Putin's only serious rival in next year's presidential election, guilty of fraud charge of a fraud charge that had already been overturned once, a convic- a conviction that may keep him out of the race. This guy fights dirty. The Russians see friendly faces in the administration. Tillerson, as the chairman of ExxonMobil, did massive deals in Russia as Trump has put it. He formed an especially close relationship with Igor Session, who is among Putin's closest advisors and who has made a fortune as chief executive of the state oil consortium Rosneft. Trump's first national security advisor, Mike, Michael Flynn, took a $40,000 fee from the Russian propaganda station RT to appear at one of its dinners where he sat next to Putin. Hey, here's 40 G's. Come to dinner with me and take a picture. (sighs) 
They're all just people, folks. We're all just fucking flawed people. The article goes on to state, the Obama administration in its final days had retaliated against Russian hacking by expelling 35 Russian officials and closing two diplomatic compounds. I remember that, actually. The Kremlin promised reciprocation, punishment, and American intelligence took the first step in sending new officials to Moscow to replace whoever would be expelled. People were already on planes, a U.S. intelligence official said. But on December 30th, Putin said that he would not retaliate. To understand the abrupt reversal, American intelligence scrutinized communications involving Sergei Kiskalev, Russia's ambassador to the United States, and discovered that Flynn had had conversations with him, which touched on the future of economic sanctions. Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, met with Kislyak in Trump Tower during the transition. The aim, according to the White House, was to establish a more open line of communication in the future. Flynn was forced to resign when the news broke that he had lied to Vice President Mike Pence about the exchanges. Then the article says that by mid-February, law enforcement and intelligence agencies had accumulated multiple examples of contacts between Russians and Trump's associates, according to three current and former U.S. officials. Intercepted communications among Russian intelligence figures are said to include frequent reference to Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign chairman, for several months in 2016, who had previously worked as a political consultant in Ukraine. Whether he knew it or not, Manafort was around Russian intelligence all the time, one of the officials said. Investigators are likely to examine Trump and a range of his associates, Manafort, Flynn, Stone, a foreign policy advisor, Carter Page, the lawyer Michael Cohen, for potential illegal and unethical entanglements with Russian government or business representatives. To me, the question might finally come down to Celeste Wallander, President Obama's senior advisor on Russia, said, will Putin expose the failings of American democracy or will he inadvertently expose the strength of American democracy? Then the article goes on to say, initially, members of the Russian elite celebrated Clinton's disappearance from the scene and the new drift towards an America-first populism that would leave Russia alone. The fall of Michael Flynn and the prospect of congressional hearings, though, have tempered the enthusiasm. All right, and I'm going to read from the last stretch here. It's a couple long paragraphs, but this is the last of it, folks. Konstantin von Eggert, a political commentator and host on Russian television, heard from a friend at a state-owned media holding that an edict had arrived that, he said, boiled down to one phrase, no more Trump. The implicit message von Eggert explained is not that there now should be negative coverage, but that there should be much less and more balanced. The Kremlin has appreciated, uh, sorry, the Kremlin has apparently decided 
he said that Russian state media risked looking overly fawning in their attitude to Trump, that all this toasting and champagne drinking made us look silly. And so let's forget about Trump for some time, lowering expectations as necessary, and then re reinvent his image according to new realities. Then it goes on to say, Alexei Venediktov, the editor-in-chief of Echo of Moscow, and a figure with deep contacts inside the Russian political elite, said, Trump was attractive to people in Russia, in Russia's political establishment as a disruptor of the peace for their counterparts in the American political establishment. Benediktov suggested that for Putin and those closest to him, any support that the Russian state provided to Trump's candidacy was a move in a long-standing rivalry with the West. In Putin's eyes, it is Russia's most pressing strategic concern, one that predates Trump and will outlast him. Putin's Russia has to come up with ways to make up for its economic and geopolitical weaknesses. Its traditional levers of influence are limited, and were it not for a formidable nuclear arsenal, its nuclear it's unclear how important a world power it would be. So, well then, we have to create turbulence inside America itself, Benediktov said. A country that is beset by turbulence closes up on itself, and Russia's hands are freed. And that's how the article ends. So my main takeaways from this article, as I've said throughout, is that one, this type of misinformation and disinformation and meddling in other countries' elections has been going on by us and other countries for dozens and dozens of probably a century or more even, you know, from things like just telling your neighbor that, you know, candidate so-and-so is going to um, start, you know, a very big war and it's going to kill a lot of people. You shouldn't vote for him and tell your friends and family the same. Two much more sophisticated versions of that. It's just now it's done with uh, more of uh, maliciousness and uh, specific intent to prop up certain candidates more than others and try to shape the culture and undermine our democratic process. I definitely agree with the the sentiment that it's something that's on ongoing and evolving, continues to evolve, and that in the future it's going to be more of this type of warfare versus, you know, boots on the ground type of warfare versus force, you know, in that we've seen the progression from uh, passing out propaganda pamphlets to high-tech cyber weapons like Bucksnet or whatever it was called and worms and all types of shit and while we are probably just as guilty or maybe even more guilty than other countries at at this we as individual citizens should consider the possibility of there being truth in this and that if there is 
the end goal of those in the middle in our process, our uh, democratic process, is to create disharmony amongst the citizens, have them infighting each other so that they can go on and, you know, do what they got to do on their end and whatever they want to do on their end because they'd be bringing us down at the same time. So we should take that into account when we're disillusioned with the system and in a I don't give a fuck mood and I'm not voting for any of them. And this very laid back, almost taking for granted the position that we're in as just individual people living in this in this country. And that's it, folks. Like I said, I found the article very interesting and it resonated with me and I wanted to share it with you guys. I linked to it in the episode notes, um, which you can uh, click on right through whatever um, podcatcher that you're listening to this on, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is that you listen, or go to my website at sponsor.com forward slash podcasts. Every episode is there. You'll find it there. And along with all the links to anything and everything that I reference throughout the episode, all the episode notes and stuff like that are there at sponsorate.com forward slash podcasts. That said, this episode went pretty long, so I'm going to do some quick house house cleaning, housekeeping, and um, tell you guys how you can help support the podcast. One great way to do it is by signing up to my weekly newsletter. It's called the Midday Monday Boost Letter. Go to sponsorate.com forward slash subscribe. It's completely free. You're going to receive one email every Monday at noon with five things that are of interest to me. Or five things rather that made the cut that week to fall under the podcast of the week. My uh, video pick of the week. My word of the week. My quote of the week. And my photo of the week. So check it out. You can also see previous ones there as well on that same page at sponsor.com forward slash subscribe. All the way at the bottom, you can click on it to see exactly what they look like. And if it seems like something you'd be into, just drop in your email address. You can cancel at any time. And again, it's absolutely free. Sponsor.com forward slash subscribe. (coughs) If you're a creative of some sort, if you like writing, uh, check out my questionnaire. It's um, a five-question questionnaire aimed at allowing you to share your tips and tricks on how you get motivated to pursue your craft and fine-tune it. Um, the previous episode to this, episode number 74, is actually a centralized episode where I took uh, four previous uh, questionnaires that people submitted and matched them up together and created a one episode where they're all together so that um, it'll be easier for people to find and it's cool you get you get uh, interesting feedback from like different writers and painters and and, and, and stuff and you know we get to kind of sort of share uh, tips and tricks like that that might help motivate somebody else that might help somebody uh, figure something out 
when it comes to their own personal work so check it out it's five open-ended questions it's a good way also for you guys to promote you know if you have like a book coming out or anything like that i give you a shout out and plug it on the podcast again it's free so check it out spontaneity.com forward slash questionnaire if you're into photography at all check out my photos at spontaneity.com forward slash photography uh you can download all the pictures there for free um and yeah check them out i think they're pretty cool well cool enough for a wannabe photographer but you know i just like pointing and shooting and taking pictures of stuff that i like next if you want to help support the podcast financially you can do so by using my affiliate links go to sponsor.com forward slash affiliate links and there you will find a amazon banner for example where you can click on the amazon banner it'll take you to amazon's website you do your shopping like you normally do and amazon gives me a kickback for whatever it is that you buy and it doesn't increase your purchase price by anything um it's just uh amazon breaking me off for driving traffic to their website so check it out at sponsor.com forward slash affiliate links and there there you'll find links to my patreon page if you want to donate let's say a dollar per podcast episode or something like that check it out uh the patreon link is there it explains how all that works you know you have a paypal option as well you have the itunes banner where you know it works the same way as amazon just click on it it'll take you to itunes buy your music buy your buy your ebooks or whatever it is that you buy at itunes and it'll work the same way uh what else what else what else check out my book i mentioned it earlier in this episode it's called make way for you tips for getting out of your own way you can find it at sponsor.com forward slash books there uh you have links to wherever it is that you can buy it which is on amazon if you want to buy a paperback copy or the kindle ebook um, you can also purchase it on ibooks on kobo where wherever it is that ebooks are sold you should be able to find it also if you would like a free copy of it uh, I can send you a copy. Just hit me up by dropping your email address in right there on that same landing page at sponsor.com forward slash books. And uh, let me know that you want a free copy and I'll send you one over. I would really appreciate if you guys could rate and review the podcast. That's how podcasts gain exposure and, you know, uh, other people get put onto it. And I uh, really appreciate if you guys can rate and review it wherever it is that you listen. You guys know that the podcast is available on iTunes, obviously, on Stitcher, on iHeartRadio, on Google Play, on TuneIn, on YouTube, you name it, it's on there. And wherever it is that you're listening to it right now take a couple seconds just click on that rate button and i would really appreciate it follow me on social media at spun today on both twitter and instagram or check out the facebook fan page at facebook.com forward slash spun today and as always folks substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams thanks for listening